Hi, I'm Amy, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm really glad to be here today. I want to thank the committee for the invitation. And I want to thank Brian for, Brian M., for all of the help that he provided and the many days that I called him, many times I should say that I called him, asking him to explain to me yet again what it was that he wanted me to do. I couldn't get it in my head. I um, am really honored and pleased to be anywhere and especially here today, and to be asked to be the service speaker. Coming from somebody who was perfectly useless, this is amazing. This is amazing, so thank you. I also want to thank Lisa G. for being a wonderful hostess. She has been amazing and fun, and really her spirit has imbued our experience here. I'm, I'm here together with... Uh, Janet B., who is the office manager of Grapevine and has been doing so for the last uh, almost 12 years. And we couldn't do it without her, and that's the truth. I also want to thank Amy for coming to the airport to get us yesterday very early. However, we were still in New York. <laughs> Apparently, Delta hadn't arranged for a pilot. So we got here. There's the bottom line. I also want to thank my sister, Sue, who is the person who 12-stepped me. And I can't thank her enough because it was her and her example that got me into the rooms of AA. And uh, Sue is celebrating, I think, this year, 43 years. <laughs> Sue uh, explained to me when I had about, um, I don't know, not very much time. I called her up and I asked her uh, about this God thing. Now, we shared a bedroom for most of growing up. We fought a lot, and she said to me, don't worry about it, Amy, God talks through people. And, you know, that's been uh, pretty good uh, advice and uh, insight, and it serves me till now, and I hope that my higher power will find a way to speak through me today, and I want to thank that higher power for the grace of my sobriety. Um... So to say, I'm here because I couldn't stop drinking. That's what it was. That's what it is. I couldn't stop drinking. And I tried. I tried everything I could think of, um, sometimes in combination. And that included also not drinking. That was one of the, the combinations. <laughs> the problem was I couldn't sustain it. Do you know, that was, that was the deal. Uh, there were many times when I took that, okay, I'm not going to drink, and I put it together with other things like another country or uh, being a vegetarian, you know, and tried to put them together to be able to do what I needed to do. And geographics were a big part of my story. And so I was always in a new place trying to start with, a, you know, the new, new start, new beginning. Uh, fresh start. 
The only problem was I would go to these places and I would explain to people when they asked me about myself, you know, I would say what the current permutation was. I'm a vegetarian and, a, you know, from California and, and so on. And hopefully right at the end, right at the end, more for me than them, I would say, and I don't drink. Because I was hoping I wouldn't drink. Because the way I drink, I might get in a fight with you. You know, this, this is, this, you know, I would, my personality would change, not always, but mostly, and I would do things that I wouldn't do while sober, usually. And so I would, I would hopefully add, and I don't drink, but this was a promise that I couldn't keep to myself, let alone you, only I didn't know that, you know, I would go out and I would be with friends or whatever it was that I was doing and trying to have a nice time, trying to, to live that promise and just very, it could be out dancing, you name it, whatever. Um, and the minute you got up to go dance on the dance floor, I would uh, forget about my water and, and reach out for your drink and drink your drink. And once I've drunk your drink, I have to leave because I have to drink the drinks I need to have. And so I uh, thought I drank in secret, but nobody thought that that knew me. <laughs> and, and, you know, so it was a surprise to no one when I said, you know, that I, you know, that I went to AA. It was not one of those things, oh, my word, you know, no. <laughs> no, there was no surprise. So let me begin with my first drink. My first drink was in California. Uh, my friend Jerry Siciliano had stolen a case of gin, and he gave me a bottle. And the thing that's interesting about that is that I grew up in a household where uh, gin was the beverage of the house, and both my parents uh, drank that copiously, and I hated it. I hated it because I blamed it for all of the troubles that we had, and we had plenty. And so it's interesting that though I had made a promise to myself that I would never do that when I got older, it was not something that had lodged itself in my mind and stayed there because I just reached out for what Jerry had to offer. I cracked the top and off I went. And it was as though there was a, a pilot light and Jerry provided the match. You know, it was on now. And that was that I was drinking. And very, very soon, very, very quickly, I drank as often as I could, in every opportunity I could, and that is where it got started. I was 14. I'm going to jump ahead to my last drink, which was geographically not far from where I took my first drink, or I should say my first drunk, because I, I did definitely in a household uh, events and so on have drinks, you know, drink people's, you know, taste people's drinks. But my first drunk was at 14. At uh, 29, I'm not far from where I had that first drink, only the, the scene has changed a lot. Um, I'm in a part of Santa Monica, which is... Uh, right next to an area called uh, Ghost Town. 
it's uh, a place where it's very common at that time. Now it's, it's gentrified, so it's lovely. But um, at the time, it wasn't lovely. Uh, there was a liquor store that had a chain link arrangement over the windows to keep them safe. And I was there at 6 o'clock in the morning waiting for them to open, having in, a hand, in my hand a handful of change, which I had stolen from my friend's you know, spare change ashtray, cobbled together enough to get a drink, which I drank right outside the store out of a paper bag. And that was my last drink. And I didn't know that that was going to be my last drink, but my family intervened uh, and, and threw me, took me uh, to um, UCLA Hospital for a 72-hour hold because my family was so frightened at where I had, what I had become and what was going on in my life that they intervened my family style, which is that my brother is an LAPD and he put um, cufflinks on me. Um, there's no talking. There are no feelings. <laughs> cufflinks, you know, handcuffs. So that's, uh, I landed uh, at UCLA and they determined that the best thing for me was to put me in a 72-hour hold so, so that I could not, as a danger to myself and others. And that's where it all went. Um, at that time, my sister Sue, who I mentioned earlier, was, uh, had nine years of sobriety. And uh, I had noticed in the last few years that she had really changed. There was this light in her eyes. She seemed pretty happy. She seemed, she seemed atrociously happy, actually. <laughs> and uh, it was important to you know, stay a little bit for, far away because she was so enthusiastic about everything. And I thought it was so uncool. And she, uh, she ended up being the person who, when my mother called, uh, not knowing what to do with me, I was living at my mom's house, and though Butch, you were at your mom's house, I was at my mom's house, 29 years old, and I shouldn't have been living there either, but I was. And she didn't know what to do, my mom. She called my sister. And at that time, I had closed the doors in the room that I was in. I had the blackout drapes uh, closed, and I had hoped hoped, hoped that I could die. That was what I really wanted. And uh, people in my family would come and knock on the door and I wouldn't answer. I just, I couldn't. You know, that, that deep demoralization, you know, I couldn't. I didn't know what to do. And they, Amy, are you okay? And I wouldn't answer. And I just, I just hoped I could die. And my sister came from uh, two hours away and she did what we do. She opened the door. She walked in. She opened the drapes. She kicked off her shoes. And I remember she got on the bed with me and she was in stocking feet. And she said, what's going on? And I couldn't talk to her either. Do you know? I just stayed there and she... She just talked, just talked. And finally, I was able to listening to her. This was no longer my sister. It was one alcoholic speaking to another, you know. She was talking about 
anything, you know, just things. And um, finally I said to her, I don't know what to do. I can't, I can't live without drinking. I don't have any friends that don't drink or use in my case. Uh, I don't have a job. Um, I was hopeless and demoralized. And she rattled off three or four things and neatly hidden in, a, in among them was you could go to an AA meeting. And, you know, she had said, she's told me since, said that to me many times, only I never heard it. Um, but this time I did, and she sent a friend the next day to take me to a meeting in Los Angeles on Sunset, uh, Wednesday night, the Pacific Group, which was her revenge. <laughs> and she sent me there because she knew that in that group they took people who were uh, hopeless, who, who can't listen. And she hoped that I would be all right there, but she did something very smart. She just stepped out of the way. And I will never forget that meeting. I will never forget it. I did not know that it would be the day that would change my life. Uh, the biggest decision I thought I made that day was whether I should wear my ponytail to the back or to the side. <laughs> but it turned out that wasn't it. It was the one that I got into that car with that person that was a friend of my sister's who took me to that meeting. And there they were. There were seven million people in that room. <laughs> and we stood in a circle. And he introduced me to these people. And there was a person there. He was a famous author. And I thought, well, finally, I'm amongst my people. <laughs> But in that, all, in that group also was Elaine F. And she had 30 days. And even though Maurice was famous, she's the one that I was really intrigued by because I thought, how did she do that? And I, I don't know. You know, she really, she really caught my attention. Um, you never underestimate the self-obsession of an alcoholic because I don't remember anything about her again until uh, a year later from that night or thereabouts. She went up to celebrate one year. And her celebration kind of broke through my self-obsessed uh, haze. And I realized, I realized if I stay here 30 more days, I'll have a year. And I, I didn't know that. I mean, I guess I did, but, you know, I realized that. So it was in the Pacific group that I, it was my sandbox in AA. Do you know, I learned all the things, you know that book, you learn everything you need to know. Well, I learned everything I needed to know in AA in, in the Pacific group. Uh, I didn't like it at the time. Do you know, I thought they were mean. I'm bossy. But the thing is, I needed that. I needed that because I'm the kind of alcoholic that will slink out the back door. And that's the kind of group that will come in around you and, and be a herd, you know, the herd effect and keep you on the inside. Because I will really slink out the door. 
And so on the, the next Monday, there was a meeting in a place called the Ohio Street Meeting, and someone told me that I had a commitment, that I now had a service commitment. So that was the beginning of service for me. And I will tell you what the job was, and I knew it was a made-up job. <laughs> they had these green benches, and there were gray vinyl uh, cushions on them. And my job was to, at the end of the meeting, wipe off the vinyl pillows, not in the whole place, but the first four rows. That's the job. I was so insulted. You know, that was, that seems so silly. But I will tell you, in going to those meetings and finding out about that, that made me come to that meeting because I was afraid those people would yell at me if I didn't. Come and get me at my home or something like that. And I went to and I did that diligently. But they also told me another thing. They said, you thank the speaker. And so I was very confused, you know, which comes first, thank the speaker, clean off the bench, I don't know. And so I, I took a risk and I went up and I stood in line, I thanked the speaker, and I turned around and there was a woman in my zone. Those are my benches. And that's how I learned about service. <laughs> you know, so that was the beginning. That was the beginning. I also learned there that I take actions I don't believe in. I do not yet believe in. I believe that's actually, probably it's written somewhere, but Clancy says it a lot. And, ah, that was important for me to know. Because I have the strangest thoughts. I really do. And I, I uh, have certain beliefs they don't need to be true, but they're beliefs. And then there are things that I tell myself that plainly are not true. Do you know that, that I can't do that, that I can do this, that it's okay to do that? And so I learned, because I got a sponsor there, I began to get, these, get some advice about what to do in my life and what steps to take. And to the best of my ability, I did them. But I will tell you that my first sponsor uh, fired me because she thought I was uncooperative. But according to me, I was being the most uh, cooperative I had ever been. Do you know? It, it was a process. Um, so that was the beginning. And what ended up happening is I did take that to heart. I did become a part of AA in, in Los Angeles. And I went to a lot of meetings beyond the, the Pacific Group. And about 12 years in, I uh, actually, let me back up a sec. Um, one of the things that they said in that group is that you have to work. And what had happened is that in the course of my drinking and, uh, and other activities, I had, I had uh, stopped doing that. I had my own business, but uh, my partner and I, we were just the same, in fact, He's sober now. Uh, we occupied our time in drinking and eventually the rest um, to the extent that by the time I came to AA, when I came uh, this time, that we were on the brink of losing everything. And so I had the feeling, these are one of the thoughts, I didn't need to be told to get a job, but the truth is I did. I did, because I was afraid. I was afraid to look people in the eye. And you have to do that if you're going to interview. 
You know, I, you have to actually show up. You know, these things are, are difficult. And uh, so people recommended. And I thought, go to work. I don't want to work at McDonald's. That was my thought. And they said, no, you just, you just work. And so my first job in, in sobriety was I was a receptionist in a hair salon. And though I have uh, a master's in business, that was the best I could do. I had to um, make a map of the six hairdressers in that salon because I couldn't keep their names straight when I was a newcomer. And I'll never forget, a woman came up to the desk and she said, why is Leslie late? And I started to cry. So these are, these are the experiences of learning, you know, they say in the East Coast, the bridge back to life. You know, I may have had a high-level degree, but I didn't know how to shut up, show up or shut up. Um, you know, um, I didn't know how to look people in the eye. I didn't know how to answer questions. I just knew how to, you know, sort of think about things, not do them. And I kept coming back. I kept coming back. That is the biggest miracle, I believe. I kept coming back. That was the gift. I kept coming back. You know, whether, whether I uh, had worn the outfit before or not, I came back when people had broken up with me. I came back when I was embarrassed. I came back because I had service commitments. That was the answer, and I was afraid of my sponsor. That, that too. <laughs> That hasn't really changed. Um, so um, there were plenty of buckle-up moments. You were talking about that. And I didn't think I would survive any of them, but I did. And along the way, things happened. Things got better. Uh, I got a sober job in a newspaper. And uh, that was my second job in sobriety. And over time, I ended up being invited to come to New York to be the publisher of a magazine because I was taught in these rooms how to keep coming back and how to show up and, you know, to, to take responsibility. And I never could have envisioned that because I couldn't look people in the eye. How are you going to go from there to here? And I had to do things I was uncomfortable with. For example, my first job in, in sobriety, uh, second job in sobriety, one of the things I had to do in that job is that I had to call on car dealers. And it was back when there were classified ads. Do you remember that? And uh, I would get the ads for their cars that were for sale um, for the upcoming weekend and what have you. That was my second job in sobriety. And I took what I learned here to do that job. I was afraid of those people. I was afraid of everything. And I would walk into those dealerships and I was taught here what to do. I would ask them, how are you? You know, how was your weekend? How did it go? And over time, they, they began to trust me. And little by little, things got better. I got better and better, better jobs. But it was because I took what I learned in the rooms of AA. I took that, and so that was a service back to me, and I took those principles into my life. So I did move to New York, and I did work for a publishing company, and I ended up getting involved in, in all media, Internet, and you name it. And four years ago, um, 
I had another buckle up moment. After working for the same company for 14 years, they invited me into the office and they said, we're not going to renew your contract, which Donald Trump would just say, you're fired. <laughs> you know, so I had a time where it's was like, all right, now what? Now what? And so I began to do work. I showed up. I began to do work. I went to meetings. I told people. But a lot of people at that time had lost their jobs. There were a lot of people. And we sat in the rooms and we talked about it and we helped one another. And that was not uh, any exception at that time. I kept going to meetings. And I was sponsoring someone. And while I was doing work at other places on, uh, on, on a job project basis, a woman I sponsor uh, was working up at Grapevine. And she said to me, uh, you know, they need a publisher up there. Maybe you should, maybe you should apply for that. And I will be honest with you, and tell you what my response was. Not out loud. <laughs> Not to her anyway. I went, grapevine. Because I worked at fancy magazines. I had big fancy jobs. Grapevine. You know, grapevine. And, um, <laughs> grapevine? But here's what was happening in that time. I had worked for the last 14 years in a job that was really feeding my ego. It was really fat, jazzy. I got to go to the south of France, stay in five-star hotel, you know, the whole nine yards. But I was miserable in the end. You know, I was miserable. And I didn't really want to keep doing that, but I didn't know, I didn't know how to stop. And uh, so my higher power found a way to stop it. And I was asking, while I was working at those project-based jobs, higher power, could you, could you show me? Could you help me? What do you want? What can I do? And along comes this grapevine thing. And it occurred to me to take actions I do not yet believe in. And... The deal was, and I could hear the, you know, the, the echoing of early sponsors, just send in the resume. Just do it. It doesn't matter about you. It doesn't matter what you think. Just do it. And so I did it. And they asked me to come back to see them, you know, to come, come up to the, to the GSO office and to the Grapevine offices and to meet with them. And I did that. Just put one foot in front of the other. One in front of the other. And six months later, they gave me the job. And that wasn't my plan. But I want to tell you that um, in our book, in the beginning, it talks about uh, prejudice, contempt prior to investigation. Now, I'm a New Yorker. I don't like to think I'm prejudiced, but I am. I have lots of thoughts about things, and Grapevine was one of them. You know, this little magazine, even saying that, little magazine, is condescending. 
But that's what was going on inside of here. The truth is, I had not opened a grapevine for 10 years. Maybe I picked it up way back when, sometime glanced at it, looked at it. I knew what it was, but that's, that's, how, I, that's how I go. I, I know a little bit of information and I act like I know a lot. I think I know a lot. I really believe I know a lot. I believe I know the meaning of words and I don't, but I use them liberally. And, I, and you know, if someone were... Pardon me? I am. That's for sure. And um, so I started to find out, I started to find out what is really true about grapevine, not what I think about grapevine. And it turns out that grapevine is an amazing thing, and I hope this is the part I'd like to share with you, what Brian asked me to do, which is to talk about what did I learn there? What I learned again is that I'm arrogant. What I learned is that I need help to be humble. And higher power arranged it. When I got to Grapevine four years ago, it was like the Hatfields and the McCoys. There was a fight going on. And it it didn't have to do with me. I just walked into the middle of it. I walked into the middle of it, and some of you may know that it had to do with the finances and whether people believe in Grapevine or not. And, you know, I didn't have anything to do with it, but because I was supposed to be the boss, I thought it had everything to do with me. And it didn't. It had to do with showing up and doing what I can and being useful. So there I was in the middle of a big mess, And I was able to bring to Grapevine things that I had learned in my job outside, you know, to bring it it up to date and that sort of thing. But here's what I want to tell you before I get into that. I did not know, for example, that Grapevine is the place where the serenity prayer was first introduced widely into our fellowship. I did not know that the preamble came from Grapevine. I did not know that the 12 Steps and the 12 Traditions previewed in the pages of Grapevine. I didn't know that the bylaws of Grapevine allow it, different than conference-approved literature, to talk about a wide range of things, talking all things about alcoholism. That the meeting and print expression is an expression that evolved from members, an endearing nickname, but it is not the official name. The official name of Grapevine or Subhead is the International Journal of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's international because our general service office covers U.S. and Canada. It is not, nor has it ever been, just the place to have our stories. It just evolved to that. The first issue of Grapevine, first column, is about Yale and an alcoholism program that they had there. So all of these things are things that I thought I knew, which I clearly did not. And so the service is to learn. To learn. You talked about that. And it's, it's talking about, don't just 
you know, have an informed conscience. Do know what you're talking about. And so it's having the opposite of contempt. It's being open and being able to see. Now, a lot of people come to me and they say, I don't like grapevine. And I'm always tempted to ask, well, how long has it been since you looked at it? Because I wonder if they have. Um, the idea was to be useful. And my background is that I know about magazines and I know about books, publishing, and about new media and that sort of thing. And little by little over the last four years, we've introduced a lot. And when I say we, I mean the Grapevine Board and the Grapevine staff, Janet being one of them. I have the privilege of working with alcoholics and non-alcoholics in the Grapevine office, all of them with experience in publishing and creative and graphic and internet, all of them working hard to make sure that our International Journal of Alcoholics Anonymous can continue. And that it's there as... And that's only if this fellowship wants it. Because Grapevine is self-supporting through the contributions that you provide. The contributions that come from subscriptions and or the sale of other items such as the books. That's it. There are no contributions. We're not allowed to solicit contributions to fund our operating expenses. But we're also in the middle of a transition. Grapevine was established in the heyday, the golden era of magazines. Everybody read magazines in those days. Now, you'd have to be asleep not to know what's happening to the print industry right now. And if you, are, if you have been asleep, it is that it is um, very difficult for print publications to succeed. It's especially difficult if you don't carry advertising. And we don't have advertising in Grapevine. What we do as we have a magazine that is supposed to reflect the broad spectrum of Alcoholics Anonymous it is the only, if for 70 years it has uh, reflected what the programs of individuals across um, across our fellowship in U.S. and Canada and sometimes further than that, what they're doing on the ground in their lives, in their sobriety. Now, if you don't agree with what's in that magazine, I'm going to tell you a story about something that my sponsor said to me, which is that I didn't agree with what was happening in a meeting. I didn't agree. And she said, well, can you, can you bring a different point of view. Can you be willing to talk about what it is that you think is missing or bring, bring the solution into the room? And the answer is yes, I could. And with Grapevine, it's the same. It's a forum. What is reflected in those pages are the stories that are submitted from this fellowship. We don't have a writing staff. You're the writing staff. And if you want to write stories about the concepts or the program that is reflected in your life, all you have to do is write it and send it to us. So if something's not quite right for Grapevine in your view, it's up to you. It's up to you to change it. So 
there I was in grapevine, answered prayer. I get this this kind of opportunity to grow that is directly uh, and uniquely designed for me, just what I need to go through, to learn what it's like to respect people who have spent 20 or 15 years in service who have gone before me, who know what's going on, and I, I don't. To get on board instead of to stand off, stand off to the side and judge. Be a part of the solution. Be a part of it. And here's what I can tell you. I'm the 20th editor of Grapevine and its history. That is not something that I would have ever, ever have imagined for myself. Bill, Bill had a vision for the voice as Grapevine for the voice of AA. And what he was thinking of as a voice for himself and then for the rest of us. And that was his vision. And that became formalized in 1986 with a conference action that recognizes Grapevine as the International Journal of Alcoholics Anonymous. The only reason it doesn't go through every conference is that we could never get a magazine out if we had to have the conference look at every single article. You know, we would have had three issues by now. But instead, we have 15,000 stories, an archive that keeps every story that has been written for Grapevine back to the beginning. And it's available for you. The whole concept of Grapevine centers on the stories, the stories that Butch was talking about, the stories that actually bring us together. The story that that woman was telling that night when I went to the Pacific Group for the first time, it was her story, not the 12 steps and the 12 traditions that hooked me. It was her story because she talked about hiding her phone in her clothes hamper so that she wouldn't drunk dial. And I remember getting a bill from the phone company with the initials R-E-P-C-H. And I called up the phone company and they explained to me that I had dialed the Republic of China. (laughs) So I identified with that woman. And that's what got me. That's what got me. So we never know. I go to a meeting in Virginia where my sister lives, and there was a woman there who was during the holidays, and she said that she was with her family and her in-laws, and she did not know how not to take a drink when she left that meeting, morning meeting, to go back and be with the family that day. And I gave, I, I found a grapevine, and I gave it to her. She had my phone number, but I said, take this with you and you'll have that if you need to duck into the bathroom and read something. You know, this, you can have this. And that's, that's something that we forget. The grapevine really works. If I could tell you how many letters we get from people who are on the road who say, this magazine saved my life. And now we get letters like that in Spanish because we also have a magazine in, in Spanish called La Viña. And it comes out every, every other month. But it's growing too. And the need for that is growing as well. The archive that we have can be accessed through our website. And one of the things that we were able to do is take the website that Grapevine had that was 
um, you know, a beginning that was arranged for early, early 2000 and updated in 2010. And now there's a digital subscription. You can record your story online by calling in or even by sending us a recording of your share to Grapevine and it can be heard. These are things that are changing. We have uh, the books in ebook. Um, language of the heart is in the process of being recorded so it can be heard in audio right now. So there are a lot of things that are happening at Grapevine. We've been, we've been working on something because we wanted a way to connect with everybody that many of you may already know, the, da- the daily quote from Grapevine. And the daily quote from Grapevine is made up of quotes from all of you that come from the magazine that you can either get by email or uh, by going on to the website. In any case, it's free. And it's just a way for Grapevine to reach out to you and to truly be involved in the lives of members of Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to thank all of the service that is done by people who support Grapevine. Uh, Mike M. is a person who has a, has a table right outside, and everybody tells me how great it is when he dresses up as Victory. I would love to see that. The thing that we're working on that I know that you guys are working on as well is that we see a big opportunity for Grapevine in the prisons, even more than there is now. Uh, not more of a need, but more grapevines and lavinas. There's an opportunity to get lavinas into detention centers. There's an opportunity to do these kinds of things. And we're trying to work with the local committees to be able to find a way to make that even more effective. We understand not everybody wants to read grapevine. But let me encourage you to think there are plenty of people who do. Seniors who don't have who aren't able to afford a subscription for themselves or your doctor's office and the like. And I'd like to encourage you to think about subscribing on their behalf and helping them. In short, I'm inviting you to become a grape nut. Now, I know I just have a few minutes here, but I want to say that this has been, I cannot uh, do justice to what I have gotten in Alcoholics Anonymous since I got sober by telling you. I can only tell you that the program I have is centered on service. That's the way that I have um, expressed my gratitude. That's the way that I can do it because I'm a person who can get confused very easily. I don't quite know what to do next. And even though this year, if all goes well, I'll have 32 years, that's still true. And the answer is, I'm the overall chair at my home group. I'm a coffee person at another meeting. I show up. I sponsor women. I show up. And I was taught that in the very beginning. I wrote a story about 
taking a coffee commitment for the first time at 30 years of sobriety and having, having a newcomer have to show me how to make the coffee. <laughs> There's always room for more. So I want to thank you. Thank you so much for having us here as your guests.